you just can't step back and stop trying cases because there's no uh, substitute for that. That's John Gomez, founder and CEO of Gomez Trial Attorneys out of San Diego, California. It's like being a fighter to me. You got to be in the gym. Like you could watch all the videos of how to fight you want, but if you're not in the gym fighting and training and sparring, then you know, you're losing ground. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. This week, I sit down with renowned trial attorney John Gomez to discuss how going all in on your cases can pay huge dividends, lessons trial attorneys can learn from world-class athletes, and the importance of maintaining discipline in both business and in life. To me, hardships are what shape champions. And so if you haven't been through hardship, how are you going to learn to answer the bell when times get tough? That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. John Gomez is perhaps best known for the high-profile American Beauty case, and he has successfully honed this craft in trials both in and out of the media spotlight. I wanted to dive deep into John's motivations and the key lessons he learned while developing himself into the elite trial attorney he is today. The first thing that I wanted to do when I opened the firm was to establish us as a real trial firm and, and myself as a real trial lawyer. So I devoted a whole bunch of energy to that. But at the same time, I've always thought that health was important. You know, I've always felt like my job as a trial lawyer and as the leader of an organization was to be present and available and physically um, able to do my job in the best way I possibly could. So I've always taken care of my health. I think I'm actually getting better at it now. I think there were a lot more late nights when I first started, a lot more sort of sleepless you know, nights and showing up after all nighters and that kind of thing. But I'm getting more and more away from that and, and more and more toward just my optimal uh, peak performance and everything I do. So I want to give the listeners some context because your results are definitely atypical. I mean, I think since you know, 2000, you guys have recovered over half a billion dollars in settlements. You have over a you know, hundred separate recoveries of a million dollars or more. What, what do you think it is that you guys are doing differently? Because most practices aren't, you know, are driving those results. Yeah, I think um, in terms of our brand and identity, I've always said we want to be known as a trial firm. And we've been very true to that in terms of our branding, in terms of what we do every day. And so we're completely willing to show up to court and actually try the case in front of a jury. And that's relatively uncommon. You know, and if we take losses along the way, we take losses along the way. I don't penalize or berate my lawyers that they lose a trial. And so I think you get a good verdict and then you get another good verdict and then maybe you get a third good verdict and then lawyers in town kind of think, oh, you know, these are the guys that can handle a case like that. So I would probably say in terms of our branding, the one thing that I've done well, I think, 
is to really stay true to that core principle that we're going to be a trial firm. Now, was there an experience early on that you had, whether it was a case or, you know, doesn't even have to be a case, but that you believe helped to define what the firm would become? Yeah, 100%. So I, I worked for this guy, a uh, very kind of well-known trial lawyer, and he kind of trained me. But what I learned was that oftentimes there can only be one kind of big dog, and it was his firm, you know, and I was kind of feeling like I was going to be the, the second big dog, but that's never going to work. And so um, he basically kicked me out. And so I was on my own starting the firm. And I had this case, very, very high profile case that he let me take with me involving the murder, uh, very high profile murder called the American Beauty murder. It's all over Oxygen Network. This beautiful blonde woman poisons her husband to death. And so there was a wrongful death case against her and the county of San Diego where she worked on behalf of uh, her deceased husband. And so we tried that case. And I remember we were basically on fumes. I had no money left. I burned through my 401k. You know, my wife was working as a lawyer at the time. We burned through our savings. We were like right at the bottom, you know, of things. And, but the the news was in there every day, uh, gavel to gavel coverage. And we ended up winning a $106 million verdict and kind of things took off from there. So that was the first one. If we had lost that, I don't know where I'd be. I wouldn't be on this podcast. Now, in terms of that case specifically, right? So that, that obviously that got a lot of media attention, but even then, like in getting the verdict that you got, there was probably the issue of, of being able to collect on that. And from what I recall, I and mean, what I remember about this case is that one of the goals that you had was that that she would not be able to monetize the book and, and all of this that, that came out of it as a result. But why was that so important to you? Well, that was really important to the family. She was in, incarcerated for life. People were coming up to her with all these book deals and stuff because she's a very attractive, smart young lady. And the family wanted her never to be able to sell her story. Basically, the, the courts had ruled in the past that you can't prohibit a criminally uh, convicted defendant from selling the rights to their story. It's an infringement of the First Amendment, that kind of thing. So she otherwise would have the right, but we wanted to shut that down and make it impossible for her to do it. And if she did it, we take all the money. And so that was one part of the case. The other part of the case was against the county where she worked, which was a much, much more difficult case. And even through that experience, as you mentioned, you're, you're clearing out the 401k, obviously taking a tremendous amount of risk, and this could have gone either way. How did you know that that was the right decision in terms of taking that risk? You know, it, it was a case that I believed I could win and it was a case that I knew would be very high profile. And frankly, back then, my risk tolerance and willingness to try any case was like off the charts, you know. So back then, I would try any case, you know, anywhere against anyone for anything. And I knew that case would get a whole lot of publicity. Now, that's interesting to me because, you know, you see a lot of trial lawyers today that only want to try the cases that they know definitively that they're going to win. And, you know, it was interesting. We had uh, Mark O'Mara on the podcast and he was just saying that, like, if you're not willing to take on the tough cases, like, w what are you doing? But not only just in terms of risk tolerance, but how important do you feel it is for trial attorneys to take on the difficult cases? Well, I think certainly as you build a reputation, that's the only choice you're going to have. You know, I feel like I have, I think now, eight verdicts of a million dollars or more in which there was a zero offer pre-trial just because those are the opportunities that were presented to me. And so as you come up, 
you're not going to get sort of the easy uh, layup cases. And if you want to develop a reputation as a trial lawyer, of course, you have to try the difficult ones. I think, you know, there comes a period of time where maybe you start dialing that back a little. Maybe you let, and in my case, I let maybe the, the younger lawyers in my firm deal with those cases now a little bit more. But especially now with COVID, since I haven't been able to try a case for months and months and months, probably will be a year until I get back in there. Um, I would try anything right now. I would try any case just to get back in there. And let's even dial it back further. So going back to what what even led you into the practice of law? Because you're someone who seems like, you know, right person in the right role. Like, I don't know if there's anything else that, you, that you'd be doing where you'd be better suited to do. Yeah, I think I was very lucky. And I agree. I'm not very talented at anything else. I don't know that I would have a whole lot of success at anything else. And the funny thing is, it was complete circumstance. I was in college playing football. And I had made friends with a guy who was two years ahead of me. And I just made friends with him because I was a bus boy at, when I was in junior college at a place. And I had a buddy that knew him. And so we would run and lift weights together. He played soccer at Princeton. And so I got to know him, got to know him, got to know him. And he ended up going to law school at Stanford Law School and was my roommate during the summers when he was working as a law clerk. And here's the honest story. Here's why I be became a lawyer. And it's a little embarrassing and not that idealistic or whatever. This guy, we lived at the beach and he would come home every day from his law clerk job at about two. And then we would ride our cruiser bikes down to the beach bars and, and drink and hang out and have fun. And he was getting paid some ungodly sum of money. And they had these parties for him and it seemed fun. And we played on the softball team. And I said, oh, what a life. I want to be a lawyer. And so now he's the managing partner of Cooley Godward here in town. And it just turned out that I thought that looked like a pretty good life for a kid with no real professional aspirations, lawyers in my family or anything else. And I just followed his footsteps. And in terms of what shaped you, I mean, if, from what I've understood, you did not have an easy childhood. You know, if, if you wouldn't mind, I mean, even speaking to that in terms of what led to the John Gomez we see today. Like a lot of trial lawyers, I didn't grow up with a lot. You know, I would say that I had challenges, you know, financially. We, we moved around a lot. I was an athlete, so that was always good. But life was tough. And I learned more than anything, just perseverance. I learned to work hard. I wasn't a great student in high school at all, you know, but I wanted to play college football. And so I ended up at a junior college because I got hurt my senior year in, in high school. And then I got hurt again. And I had kind of time on my hands. And I said, well, I'm going to devote myself to school. And I ended up doing really well in school and just put that determination and perseverance and hard work to the, the issue of academics and then to college football. And I guess the rest is history. You know, I feel like if anything defines me and my success, it's the willingness to work hard, perseverance, determination. Yeah. And, and, and I will say, I mean, you built a, a very successful trial firm. There's I mean, obviously numerous firms, not only in just San Diego, but across the country, but they don't get the results that you guys get. So what do you believe is the biggest difference or what do you believe is, I guess, the success factors that lead to the outcomes that you guys have experienced? I think we've done some things well, you know, and I've done some things well as a lawyer 
and as a leader. And the most important thing that I've done well is to cultivate and train and lead by example. And so we have very high standards. We provide our people all the training and resources and collaboration that you can imagine. So that part of things I've done very well. I've I've really developed a group of trial lawyers that are very, very talented and successful. You know, and the beauty is only very recently, I would say, and I've been pretty good at marketing as well, I would say, okay, you know, but only very recently have I really turned my attention to the important issue of the business of law. Now that I've built the product, now I'm really, really engaged in the business. And I'm hopeful that, you know, a few years down the line, you know, people might see this story and go, wow, you know, the the firm was this kind of, you know, smaller, very successful, but smaller trial firm, boutique kind of, but now look at them. You know, that's my goal. So how do you define success? I think I define success, first of all, as being able to proudly look myself in the mirror every morning, being a good example to my children, helping our clients and helping improve the lives of all of our employees. You know, I feel like we have a responsibility to a large community. And so for me, success is defined in terms of my ability to lead, inspire and improve the lives of as many people as possible. Yeah. And there's a school of thought that you, know, you have to choose between being the great trial lawyer or, or being the great business leader. And it seems like you've been able to do both. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that in, in terms of whether that can be balanced and, and how do you approach it? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I think historically I was, to the exclusion of everything else, I wanted to be a great trial lawyer. You know, I would go to all the trial lawyer conferences and the seminars and You know, there's webinars on every day now about how to try a case and this and that. And I think I kind of overlooked the business, you know, but now I'm all about the business. That's what really gets me going and um, gets my juices going. And so can people do both? I think so. You know, I'm committed to doing both. And there's lawyers out there that I think do both. I would like to see myself. I think it's just a question of, ensuring that you are doing the things that you do well. And so for me, that's being a visionary, that's trying cases, that's getting business. And so if I can offload all the other stuff, then I think it clearly leaves me time and energy to do both. That is um, run the business and try cases. Yeah. And, and, and throughout everything, I feel like there's this undertone of like the standard of excellence that you've established just for the practice as a whole. And, and, and from what I recall, I think back in 2012, you went off the grid or Wyoming rather, right? And you went to uh, trial lawyers college. You basically left the practice, right? You left the practice, you left your family. Like, I guess talk me through what that decision was. And then also, you know, the experience of how that helped to, uh, to elevate your game. The trial lawyers college, um, it's a, a ranch. It's, it's an institution based on a ranch in Dubois, Wyoming, and basically was founded by Jerry Spence. At the time, the president was this guy, Jude Basil, who is currently a lawyer of counsel with my firm. And so I had had some trial success and he invited me to come. And I said, okay, I'll go. And you go out there for like 30 days, you're on a ranch, you really don't have Wi-Fi, you don't have computers, and you're really engaged in 
a journey to find your true vulnerable self. There's a lot of um, self-exploration. They engage in this process called psychodrama, which can get pretty intense. And you make these friendships and relationships for life. And I think the primary takeaway is it allows you to be very comfortable with yourself in front of a jury or just with other human beings. Now, this has come up almost on every single podcast. And it's not, I don't think it's coincidence because it seems like the most successful business leaders I speak with, this becomes something that is very important to them, which is knowing themselves. And when you talk about a concept like psychodrama, how important do you believe it is, you know, just not even necessarily just for a trial lawyer, but just for a business leader to work through their own issues and like really go through that process just at some point in their life? I think it's critical, you know, because otherwise there are these barriers to your effective communication and a reaction to life, you know, that you don't even realize are there. Here's an example. Like I grew up, I think, untrusting of people. You know, because I didn't have like people weren't taking care of me. People weren't nice to me. So I never want to let anyone in. And so I would never talk to other people or get advice from other people or have mentors or, you know, reach out for help ever, ever, ever. And that and that continued, you know, through the initial formation of my firm. You know, now, you know, I think because I've hopefully cleared my mind a little bit of that distrust through that work, you know, if you have someone on your podcast, you know, and I, I enjoy listening to them, I'm probably going to call them up and go, Hey, you know, I, I listened to what you had to say. Would you mind like talking to me about it for another 45 minutes? And I've just benefited tremendously by that. And, and the same, I would say the same is true in front of a jury. You know, if I'm holding back weird things or being insecure, you know, that's going to show and inhibit my ability to communicate with them and really, read the room, uh, and be emotionally congruent with what's going on. Yeah. And, and to further elaborate on that, I mean, what do you think really separates the elite trial attorneys from, from everybody else? Like, what is it that they are doing differently, both in, in and outside of the courtroom? The people I really admire have very different styles and approaches, you know, like you had Mark Lanier on, you know, he's huge I'm hero of mine. Brian Panish out here in California is a friend of mine and a guy I admire a lot. There's tremendous female trial lawyers, so different styles, different you know looks, different genders. But I think the the consistent thing is that they have a commitment to excellence, and they work really hard at it. And a lot of people don't see that. They say, "Oh, they're just naturally talented," and maybe there's a little bit of that. But I think it's all hard work. I think it's just commitment and repetition and hard work is really what defines you know the great trial lawyers. And it's not exactly like an athlete, you know, because they're freak athletes that can just go out and be freak athletes. But the, the Hall of Famers are the ones that worked on their craft. And I would say the same thing with trial lawyers. Yeah. I mean, I remember we had uh, we had Joe Freed on and he mentioned something to the tune of that over the last 10 years, he's given over 500 presentations on trucking. It comes out to, I think, something like almost one a week for 10 years straight. And I, I think that a lot of people don't kind of see that. But what, have, what are some of the things that you've done to really hone your craft? You know, I, I have been kind of shameless about copying other people where it works for me. And so I'll get, you know, transcripts from a lawyer that had a good result. I'll go and watch a lawyer that I admire. I'll go to their seminars. 
And then I'll just take little things. And I think the important thing is, you know, one, you got to keep doing it. You just can't step back and stop trying cases because there's no uh, substitute for that. Like right now, everybody's watching webinars at home in their living room, you know, and they're getting better at trying cases, maybe a little bit, not really. I think they're getting worse because they're not trying cases. It's like being a fighter to me. You got to be in the gym. You could watch all the videos of how to fight you want, but if you're not in the gym fighting and training and sparring, then you know, you're know you losing ground. And so for me, the most important thing, I take a little, I, I make it my own, and then I apply it. And I think the application is the most important. You know, Staying in trial, staying in the moment, remaining engaged. Yeah. And then there's this, there's the saying that, you know, true confidence can only be earned through results. Like you, you got to get the results and, and you, you know, you see a lot of ego, right? Which, which is not really the same thing as, as confidence, but over the years, obviously with the verdicts and, and do your experiences in trial, do you believe that's what's really helped you to build your, your confidence? Just, just being in the courtroom, getting those verdicts, getting those outcomes, you know, or was it something else? You know, I, I do think it's been results because I haven't had a whole lot of easy wins. I, I've tried difficult cases and had, you know, really great results. You know, and I've lost some, certainly, but by and large, you know, I've done pretty well with what I've been given. And I think that that feeds upon itself and, and does provide some confidence and, and peace of mind. And certainly not ego, though. It's certainly not, oh, you know, I'm going to crush this person or I'm the greatest or anything like that. What's, what's, uh, I guess, what's the feeling that you have now when you're about to step into the courtroom? Do you, do you still get nervous? Yeah, certainly. You know, I think I'm more excited than nervous. You know, I'm not very nervous about talking to a jury anymore. I'm not that nervous about examining a witness. I, I do get nervous when we're waiting for the verdict. You know, that part still does make me pretty nervous. But I wouldn't say I'm nervous during the trial itself. Just because, you know, I feel like I've seen most of what I can see. I, I plan, you know, very much in advance. I feel like I'm well prepared. So um, maybe not so nervous there. Maybe just a little rush of adrenaline. But other than that. There's a quote by Robert F. Kennedy that resonates with many leaders. Only those who dare to fail greatly can ever achieve greatly. I wanted to know what have been some of John's greatest failures. I've certainly had failures in terms of trials. You know, we had a period of time where... I think the firm lost like five trials in a row, which is obviously very harmful to us financially. And none of them were very easy cases, but still that can kind of set you back on your heels a bit. You know, I've made bad, I think, business decisions. I maybe hired some people I shouldn't have. I probably, there was a period of time where I grew too much. You know, I grew very aggressively without really the capital to sustain that. And then we had the trial losses and then we had some other litigation not go great. And so that was a very dark time, you know, that I was like feeling like at the period I was gonna lose the firm, I had to uh, lay off like 12 to 15 people, which I've never had to do before. That was gut-wrenching. That was a period of time where I wasn't sleeping much. I was worried about losing the firm. I was going through a divorce at the time, you know, which made it even more fun. I was like, now, now we're talking, right? I'm like, I'm hearing this and I'm like, man, this is getting worse and worse. <laughs> it was brutal, man. I was, I was 
sleeping in a two bedroom apartment. You know, I had, I had already made it as a trial lawyer, you know, but then, you know, I, I go through the divorce, the firm has a, a couple years, which aren't so great. And so I'm sleeping in this two bedroom apartment awake at night, figuring out, am I going to be able to make next, next week's payroll? So I've been through that, you know, and, and at that time I said, look, you know, I had to step back. I said, what's working, what's not working. What do I have to do to get through this for the benefit of my really committed team members and myself and my family? And I just made some hard decisions. And, you know, the funny thing is when I laid those people off, they all seemed pretty understanding of it. And I did it myself. You know, I felt, look, I'm the captain of the ship and I let the ship get away from me. You know, I need to face the music. And they, a lot of them are still stay in touch and are friends. And it worked out. It obviously, it worked out great because since then we've been on an upward tra- trajectory. Now, when you're in those darkest moments, because I was going to say it comes in threes, but in your case, it was it was more than three, three things happening simultaneously. How did you get through it? Meaning that, you know, I'm sure there are multiple times where you're thinking, I'm going to shut the firm down. I mean, you could go work at another firm. There's other things, you know, other decisions you could have made aside from kind of enduring down that same path. So how did you approach that? You know, I think perseverance, you know, I've faced difficult circumstances in my life. I've been like without food, you know, I've been dealing with, you know, bad people in my life. So like having difficulties managing a law firm in the larger sense, you know, to me, we're always temporary. I always thought I could get through that. And I've always had, you know, confidence in my own ability to make things right. And I just said, look, I'm going to grind and grind. I'm going to make decisive action and then I'm going to grind and I know we're good and we're going to come out fine. And so it was a combination of perseverance based on past hardship with a confidence in the future. Do you believe, and this is something I, I think a lot about in the sense that, do you believe anyone could skip that process? So meaning that they, they may not deal with the same hardships, but can they skip hardships altogether to actually become a great law firm? I think that's a hard question. I think I think it would be tough. I think, I think it's To me, it would be difficult to skip hardships to become a great performer in any business environment or human environment. To me, hardships are what shape champions. And so if you haven't been through hardship, how are you going to learn to answer the bell when times get tough? Could it happen? I imagine it could, you know, like your father runs a great law firm and then he just gives it to you and the firm is already a clicking and you make it even better. I suppose that could happen and probably has happened. But the more enduring stories are born of some struggles along the way. Yeah. And I, and I found that you also it's almost a tragedy when that happens or when somebody gets a, a huge verdict early on. Right. And what you lose in that time, because I've, I've met a lot of these people and it just seems like they really struggle with their own confidence. They struggle with their own value. And it just because they just feel like they haven't earned it. Right. When you, when you come from, from just rock bottom and you build it up, I think that stays with you. No, no one can rob you of that courage. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it, it is a peace of mind that you acquire through hardship. So looking back, you know, you look at back at the last 20 plus years, do you have any regrets? I have two regrets. One, like I was one of those guys that got big verdicts right away. And so like very early in my career, I was a complete rock star trial attorney, a ton of money, and I probably had too much ego. And I was sometimes a bit bit of a moron, 
you know, in terms of my behavior, you know, I'd be out with bottle service and staying out late. And, you know, I was married at the time, just so that's certainly a regret, you know, and that's a, a warning I would have for lawyers that have great success when they're, especially me, I grew up poor as hell. I, you know, so I was like, you know, I, I equate it to like a lot of these professional athletes that had nothing. Then they got millions with all this fame and they act like morons. That was me. So that's one regret. And then I would say um, at the same time, you know, I probably was not as sensitive to the feelings of different people. You know, I just was like, okay, suck it up, you know, be a champion, win. What the fuck's the matter with you? You know, like that kind of guy. And now I recognize that there's a whole broad spectrum of human reactions to situations. And just because they don't react just like me doesn't mean it's a bad thing. And so both of those are probably just growing up for lack of a better term. Yeah, it, you know, and I've always seen you as, as a disciplined person, just just a very disciplined in terms of your routines, what you're doing in and out of the office. Were you always as disciplined or did that evolve out of out of those situations? I always have been disciplined, you know, like in terms of like training, I've been a, a martial artist for a long, long time. I was a college athlete. And so I would always stay pretty healthy, but my, I would say alcohol consumption and uh, use of other substances and my lifestyle got out of hand for a while. And that caused me to develop a whole lot more discipline in terms of my self-care and sort of self-centering and healthy lifestyle. So I have developed a lot more discipline than I had back then. But even in like high school and college, I was always the hardest working out, you know, on any team that I played on. So I've had that, but I just got a little off track. While the early days of John's career required tremendous resilience, in many ways, his story transformed into one of redemption. How has overcoming adversity impacted John's personal and professional life? And to what does he attribute his growth into someone who leads by giving? The funny thing is, over the years, I have learned about people that I barely know that just hate me and think terrible things about me. They have this preconception of who I am. And then sometimes they'll say, oh, you know, I didn't realize you're actually a nice guy. Or, you know, I had this guy reach out to me and he goes, hey, John, you know, I haven't you know, come to the meet. I, I host these meetings in my law firm for a group. I just let them use my courtroom. And he goes, I've never, I didn't come before because I was jealous of you. And I was, and, and there's just this community of people that I think maybe there was a period of my life where I earned it, where people did not like me, some with good reason. You know, I always tried to be nice to everybody, but I was a bit of an ass. But even now, like there are people that dislike me. And so is it a redemption story? Yeah, you know, I think you can't help but feel that a little bit. And I've gotten to the point where I don't really care. You know, if people don't like me. I know the life that I live. I know how I try to help people. But I think it's important for me. I feel like I, I was on the rock so much. I feel like God interceded and chose me and saved me from a lot of harm and or death and or just not being around and I owe it to him and, and to myself and to everyone to give it back in a positive way. So yeah, I feel like it's a good chapter in my life right now. Yeah. 
it, it seems like your faith is very important to you, your health, your family, you know, you've surrounded yourself with, with an exceptional team. I mean, it's, it, I think it's a very, you know, great place to be, but it also, and I appreciate you sharing everything that led to that, right? That road that, you know, in a way it's almost like you've earned it and then you've been very proactive about it because I know when you shared the story that, you know, earlier on in the practice where you had to let some people go, you know, you fast forward several years in the COVID times, firms around the nation are letting people go. They're furloughing their, their teams, they're cutting pay. You guys didn't do any of that. No. Once you build a team that's committed and talented and that you have trust in, I, I don't want to let you know do anything to interrupt or, or violate that relationship of trust. And I feel like I'm, like I said before, I'm the captain of the ship. And if I'm running the firm in a way that I feel like I got to fire people like a week after the onset of this disease, then I'm not doing a very good job. And thankfully, now we have the data. We actually have the data so we can see how much money we'll have when. And I knew that, you know, we had enough money to keep them on. And I think there comes a moral choice as a leader. You know, I can't speak for everyone, but a lot of those layoffs and furloughs and reductions weren't so much for survival, but to put more money in the boss's pocket. And that doesn't seem right to me. Because there's going to be plenty of money in the boss's pocket once this thing gets over. And so, you know, hang on to your crew now, treat them well, and then reap the benefits on the other side. Agreed. Agreed. So what are what are some of the things, I mean, you do on a day-to-day basis or even a week-to-week basis that help you stay in peak state? I do this thing called morning routine. Every morning I get up at about usually 420, uh, 4.15, 4.20, get up and I meditate. So I do transcendental meditation. I'm trained in that. So I I do that. Then I pray. I read the Bible for a little bit. And that kind of starts my day, you know, off right. I do something physical pretty much every day. And so I really am a a big fan of, I like jujitsu. I train in jujitsu. I do judo, which is very similar. And I do uh, Bikram hot yoga, which is... uh, to me, like very good for an older guy like me trying to do the jujitsu and judo. And very like, you know, if I do that during trial, I'll go in and I'll be doing the yoga. And then all of a sudden, just this thought will come to me that clarifies everything. And so otherwise, you know, I try to spend super quality time with my kids. You know, I take them to their soccer practices or whatever practices, try to watch all their games. I've coached them all. I just try to give quality time to the people around me. And I try to get good sleep, eat well, not ever go to a club or stay out late at a bar ever. So that's basically where I'm at right now. Now, let's talk about jujitsu, because it's clear that you're very passionate about that. And so I'm not a practitioner myself yet, but from everything I've heard about jujitsu is that if if you ever come in with ego, that'll get, you know, that'll get out of you pretty quick. Uh, Do you see any parallels between jujitsu and and, uh, even being a trial attorney? Yeah, lots. You know, the thing I like about it is that it just crushes me. Like where I train, everybody's better than me, I feel like. And everybody's younger than me. And so I like to do things that that when I'm driving there or on the way, I'm a little scared. You know, like that adrenaline kind of gets in you and you're like a little scared and you're like, oh, shoot, what's going to happen? Am I going to get my ass kicked today or am I going to survive or how is this going to go? And that's the way I feel every time that I'm on the way to do that. And I think that's a, a great thing for anyone 
that has had any kind of success in any other aspect of their life. Because on the mat, they don't know. I mean, maybe a couple of them know I'm a lawyer, but they could give a shit about any verdict or what kind of house I live in or anything like that. And so I think it removes a lot of ego in life. And then once you get into court, you know, it provides you a confidence to be sure, but I think it removes an ego because you are completely worthless. You're trying your best and you're doing your best. And I don't want to overplay it, but it's certainly an ego smashing activity for me. Yeah, well, like I'll, I'll tell you, the people listening, I, I don't know that they're going to be, you know, that was the greatest pitch for why they should get into jujitsu. But I, I hear that side of it in the sense that I've constantly stressed these, even to our team and uh, to people I mentor, the importance of not just losing, but just doing difficult things, being able to like just to win the day in some capacities. So like you just described, when you're going there and you're scared, you just you're going to get your ass kicked, basically. But, you know, a rational person would look at that and say, well, why would you ever do that, right? Like, why would you ever go? Yeah, I, I, you could say the same thing about hot yoga. Very difficult, hard to breathe. You know, and I will say just because I don't want to say jujitsu is bad. These are some of the best people on earth. Like, they would never maliciously hurt you. There's little physical risk of actual harm. It's really just losing the ego. And over time, you get better and do better. And I do fine. You know, so I don't want to overplay it. If you're thinking about doing it, I highly encourage everyone to do it. Many, many people say it's the best sort of physical and mental thing you can do for yourself. Yeah. And, and, and to me, the parallel, it seems, you, you know, even as a practicing trial attorney, the importance of really putting yourself out there, being willing to suck, right? To, especially at the very beginning. I mean, it was the same thing for me when I, when I started CrossFit. I was doing weight training for years and I started CrossFit. I came in, I was the absolute worst person in that entire facility. I mean, they do leaderboards and I was at the bottom of the leaderboard. And I think a, a, you know, a normal person gets discouraged and says, I'm never coming back. I was so excited because I was like, now I have the opportunity to get better at this, right? Like, I'm not going to you know, come in here every day and be at the bottom of the leaderboard. But I feel that many times people almost withhold that opportunity for themselves to grow and improve by not doing difficult things. I totally agree. You know, and, and whether it be, I love getting into litigations that I really don't know that much about or, you know, trying a case against a great lawyer. I used to box, you know, then I got too old to box, but like on sparring Fridays, being a little bit scared about what was going to happen, I think is a tremendous opportunity for growth. Clearly, John Gomez is a trial attorney and business leader who has not only forced his own path, but is cultivating a legacy of great impact. So what does being a game changer mean to John? Whether another person is a game changer for me or I'm a game changer for them, to me, it means that this person is a person others will look to and emulate in some regard. And so you're not only changing the game, you're changing someone else. There have been many game changers that have changed my outlook on law and business and life. And that's really what a game changer is, a person that others look to and they say, wow, you know, look at the way they do that or approach that or explain that. I want to be like that. I want to copy that. I want to emulate that. To me, you know, that's not only a game changer, that's a life changer. I want to give a huge thank you to John Gomez for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was how John has translated his personal passion for being in the courtroom into building up a team of elite trial lawyers that he has cultivated, trained, and led by example. 
You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with John Gomez, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking to the CEO of Whoop, Will Ahmed, about unlocking human performance. Yes, you heard that right. Pop culture health stuff has been very one size fits all. The flavor of the month is paleo. The flavor of the month is keto. The flavor of the month is melatonin before bed, whatever, right? And that's what you should do. And and I just think that's BS, right? That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 oh